This is the light which shall give revelation to the Gentiles. The mystery of God in the world for the salvation of the world. Hello, everybody. How's it going? This is Jordan Pacheco from the Glad Trad Podcast. And today I have a really, really special guest, one of my all-time favorite people, and not just because I work with him sometimes, but this is Paul McCusker. Paul McCusker is uh, a renowned art, uh, author. He's known for his Adventure in Odyssey series, as well as if you listen on Formed, um, any of the audio dramas, those wonderful productions that that we put on there on time, he is the is a mastermind behind those. Um, he's also one of the uh, senior creative directors where I work, which is the Augustine Institute. So uh, because I kidnapped him and because he can't leave for at least an hour, we got him in studio. How are you doing, Paul? Yeah, yeah. You know, thanks so much for coming on. I'm so excited because for our audience, um, a lot of times we talk about the kind of the cultural aspects in Catholicism, something that really interests us. And so we've talked a lot about storytelling and obviously you being an author, this for obvious reasons interests you greatly. Uh, but before we kind of get into kind of the nuts and bolts of what Christian storytelling takes, or maybe even just storytelling in general, right? Um, I know that you're a convert and uh, we're very, we're huge fans of converts. So why don't you uh, give us just a little overview of where did you start and what brought you into the church and how long ago was that? Well, um, short version is I grew up Baptist for the most part, definitely evangelical Protestant. But my formative years were in the Baptist Church, and um, then through a variety of circumstances, including just moving from one end of the country to the other and job changes, um, I, I was actually more open to uh, the Anglican Church. Now, Anglican is Episcopalian in this country, Anglican in England, and um, the Episcopalian Church in this country. Uh, is definitely left of center in many, many ways on many, many issues. And, um, but when I was living in England and sort of discovered the Anglican church there, which was still at the time a little more traditional than the American version. And I just, I remember having grown up evangelical Protestant and everything that was going on, uh, all the things got used to, and also the trends, the way things were going there uh, for me back in the 80s. Um, I remember walking into the church, this kind of, uh, you'd call it a high church Anglican. It would be, mm-hmm. you know, the bells and smells. And um, uh, I remember going in there with my wife and sitting down, and it was uncanny to me because the last thing I ever thought I would be looking for was a high church experience. And I sat down and thought, this is it. This is what I've been looking for for such a long time. And I didn't even know it. And so I was part of the Anglican church for, let's say, almost 15 years. And um, in America, we moved back to America from England and had been here in Colorado Springs for years and years. But we were part of a fairly traditional Episcopalian church. And um and it was really good, but all the pressures from the bigger denomination kind of squeezed us in a lot of ways. And as I was watching what looked to me like the, I want to say the Episcopal Church seemed to be imploding, especially over um, issues of sexuality. Yeah. Um, and what triggered some questions was the fact that they had a, a man who was a priest who then came out and said, I'm gay. He divorced his wife 
and left his children, but he maintained his role as a priest. There was no pushback to the fact that he had betrayed at least two sets of vows <laughs> in order to do this. He was applauded for having discovered himself and this whole spark within him and you know so uh leadership was a plot they were applauding him. Mm. so i just want to i just want to back up because i know that um obviously being a catholic and and knowing a little bit of the anglican church just how it worked in back in the old days i know that uh no fault divorce for long as my time was a was not was not a thing in the anglican church right i, I was watching mm -hmm. the crown recently and that was kind of like the big question right is is can this guy yeah. get divorced to marry uh, queen elizabeth's sister and so um, at that time, had no fault divorce crept itself in, or was it still grounds of mm. what, however? Oh, no, no, no. It, 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 it had, that had been dealt with years before. I mean, we're talking, we're, we're talking. The implosion was early this century, twenty first century. So I'm not even talking back in the eighties or nineties. This is now, and this whole thing happened. Well, then what really started tearing things apart was they wanted to move him from uh, being. A, a priest to a bishop. So in in the Anglican, I mean, well, the Episcopal Church, which then ripples out into the Anglican communion around mm -hmm. the world, um, it was a huge deal. It was a huge issue. And the issue wasn't just simply about that. It was more about, well, what does this church believe? And why, and, and why do they believe it? And you know, if they have bishops that are sort of in continuity somehow historically, even though the Anglican Anglican Christianity really goes back about 500 years, mm. goes back to Henry VIII. And what the English did, and they're brilliant about this, is what they did was they integrated what they considered the best of the Reformation, but rather than do like so many of the, the branches did, which was throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. What they did was they said, no, we want to integrate the best of our Catholic selves with the best of what we believe about the Reformation. And Henry VIII actually believed that he was Catholic, I mean, even up to his death, just not in communion with Rome, mm -hmm. because he had declared himself head of the church in England, and because he wanted yet another divorce and the Pope wouldn't grant it to him. So... What I began to think, just just the Baptist in me rebelled against everything. It's like, this isn't scriptural. It's not. But, you know, I'm going to step back and just ask the question, if they are somehow in continuity, then are they within their right to make this decision to accept gay marriage, to accept a lot of these things that they were accepting as, as a denomination? And what that did ultimately was in raising that question, I then went to the question, which I know a lot of converts came to one way or the other, which was the issue is not biblical authority. It's the interpretation. So my question was, who has the authority to interpret Scripture and establish doctrine? So that was my question. And I didn't pretend to know the answer because I didn't. Mm. Up until that time, it was not a question I actually asked myself, ever, there were just, you kind of roll along, as an evangelical, I was rolling along with just the assumptions, many of the assumptions, challenging certain beliefs, and certainly reading scripture, and affirming what I believed, and owning it for myself, but that big question never really came to me until the implosion in 
uh, in the Episcopal Church. And that was the start of the journey. Because to answer that question, I dug into Scripture. The first thing I actually read was uh, the book of Acts. <laughs> because my question was, what did the church, the earliest Christians do after the ascension? In other words, what did the church look like right after Christ, right after he ascended? What did they do? And I started reading the book of Acts, and I'm looking at the letters. And uh, to be honest, I didn't dig that deep into uh, the early church fathers, because in a way I didn't need to, Coming as, as a former Baptist, Scripture was preeminent in my yeah. mind. And so I'm looking at this saying, you know, it's really interesting what's happening here, the decisions that are being made in the book of Acts, whether it's about the Gentiles, whether it's about the Apostle Paul, it's about all the even the decision to replace Judas, you know, and and what kept coming back to me was authority. The authority was with the disciples, with the apostles. So then I go back to scripture and I'm reading and I'm reading suddenly it's like, well, hang on, Jesus gives this to them. So I'm answering all the questions most Catholics know. Hmm. It's it's an assumed part of Catholicism that the authority to interpret scripture and establish doctrine rests with the apostles. So who carries on the apostolic authority? So then that's what that led me to. Having asked the one question, I then went, well, who is it? And it was obvious historically, because once you get into history, as John Henry Newman said, once you get into history, especially prior to Henry VIII, you are in solid Catholic territory. You got 1,500 years of solid Catholic territory. So then it was the question of, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, as opposed to, let's call it Western Orthodoxy, mm -hmm. the Catholic Church, the Roman Church. And then I went through a series of, uh, as part of the journey, just exploring that question. And and everything compelled me towards be the one thing I never thought I would become, and that was Catholic. Yeah. Knowing full well, working for a staunch evangelical organization, Family members were staunchly evangelical. I was surrounded by evangelical friends. And, and it was in my mind that this was going to really turn things upside down. But having asked the question, I almost felt duty-bound to see the answer through. Otherwise, why ask the question? That's why right. search for these things? If I get to it and go, oh, well, I'm not, sorry, that's, that's just a bridge too far. I can't do that. So I was received into the church um, uh, 13 years ago and um, continued in my career with focus on the family, evangelical organization. I was doing Adventures in Odyssey, um, hugely popular uh, audio drama series, but we also did books and films and all kinds of things. And, um, and then the next part of it was simply, so is it possible for me to do within the Catholic community, what I've been doing for the evangelical Protestant community for 30 years or mm. whatever. And the initial answer was no. <laughs> I could not find a place to go. And I don't even mean by way of a job. I just meant as a freelance writer, uh, as an author, as whatever. I would have conversations with key people who agreed that storytelling is a very powerful thing and ought to be done better in the Catholic community. 
But then nobody wanted to take the initiative to say, Mm -hmm. how do we do it? How do we produce it? How do we publish it? Whatever that was. Until I met Dr. Tim Gray at the Augustine Institute. And he and I had a conversation. He was already ahead of that. He made it very clear to me that his intention ultimately was to hire me because he wanted the Augustine Institute to move forward with that. And that's for the last seven years, that's what I've been doing. Wow. Well, praise be to God. You know, I'm, I'm so honored to to work alongside you. And, um, you know, the thing that that's funny that your story of coming into Catholic creativity is very similar to mine in, in the way that I was shooting out in Los Angeles. Um, and I was happy doing it, right? My, my secular work, I, I, my rules are wanting to get paid for my work and want to be able to show my mom what I worked on. Uh, for mm-hmm. the most part, both of those are true. So, <laughs> so, um, so I remember, and I was shooting some stuff, especially for the fraternity of St. Peter out there, just small stuff that was my gratification. But I was like, I don't want to, I don't know what it means to be a, a Catholic filmmaker. They don't exist. Um, mm-hmm. It infuriated me. We'll get into this later, but it absolutely infuriated me when I found out that the makers of God's Not Dead are two Catholics. I was like, ah. Um, but <laughs> but when I when I when I toured the Augustine Institute uh, and met Steve and all the rest of them, I was struck because they showed me the the search in the screening room, and I remember going, oh, this isn't just like an apostolate. Cause I know what apostolate filmmaking yeah. looks like. You know, uh, mm-hmm. this is this is the real McCoy. And so um, I always say that I think that we are by grace of God, or really are a crack team, uh, chosen from all over the empire with all these kind of different backgrounds. Um, before we dive into, into kind of the, the film aspect, I do want to ask one question. So coming from, or two actually, so coming when you were an Anglican, did you consider yourself Anglo-Catholic or was it pretty staunch, the evangelic, I mean, you were high church, but was it more like an evangelical kind of? Well, the truth is my ignorance of Catholicism, I wouldn't have known. I knew I was high church in terms of the Anglican Episcopal tradition, and I knew we had overlapping things with the Catholic Church, because like I said, they wanted to integrate what they considered the best of Catholicism with the best of the Reformation. So I knew we were doing that, but I couldn't have identified to what degree we were. Mm. It wasn't until I became Catholic that I went, hang on, (laughs) hey, Hang on, this this liturgy, so much of this is taken from the Catholic missal. It's taken from Catholic tradition. And so I I in a way it eased the passage. I by the grace of God, I don't know that I could have gone from Baptist to Catholic. Mm. So and a lot of people say that Anglicanism is the bridge. Mm, yeah. But what they forget, and the Anglicans. Anglicans say that, but what they seem to forget is bridges usually go somewhere. You don't just stay on the bridge. Mm, And that part of it, I realized, uh, because I remember at at our church, we had a few people who joked about us being like uh, Catholic light, you know, you know, we were, we were like Catholic marijuana as opposed to to the gateway, the hardcore Catholic heroin, you know, whatever it is. But, um, I'm changing I'm the name sorry. of my podcast to Catholic Heroin, by the way. There we go. That's, oh, there we that's go. okay. <laughs> yeah. we're Catholic junkies. We're Taliban <laughs> Catholics. But, no. um, so that part of it, again, going back in time, in terms of, you know, there, there's a joke that was made by actually an evangelical pastor who said, most, most Christians don't know history. They know this thing called the first century, this blip called the Reformation, and mm-hmm. then built 
that's it. And I think that was true. That was true for me. I because it seemed unessential. You know, if if you are reading and interpreting scripture for yourself, why do you need two thousand years of history in between? So I got pieces of it. But then the Anglican church I went to was very much into history and teaching uh, Anglicanism in context. Mm -hmm. And so as I learned more about that, I went, oh, okay, now I'm seeing where some of this is coming from. Now I see the history at least going back 500 years. And my admission was that while I didn't care much for Henry VIII, certainly not his morality, I thought, you know, Henry VIII is kind of like an entrepreneur. <laughs> you know, this guy who basically says, here's what I'm going to do. And then he's surrounded by theologians who went, OK, how do we explain this? Mm -hmm. You know, so they had to kind of scramble, much like, you know, everybody in any company where the entrepreneur director boss, uh, Steve Jobs, whoever says, well, this is what we're going to do. And they're going, OK, now we have to figure that out. And that's what I think happened in England. But for me, the more I studied and then I go backwards beyond the 500 year mark. And then I see where it all connects. I can see how it all connects, even more so. So I came into the Catholic Church um, ill-informed because I was Protestant, and all the urban legends about Catholicism are still widely believed among mm. even intelligent Protestants. You know, why do you worship Mary? Yeah. Well, we don't. And it may look like that to you, but that's not what's happening. And then uh, I kind of had to get on the other side of my preconceived notions. And I honestly think that was a big turning point, too. And the truth is, I met Peter Craft at a C.S. Lewis conference. Mm. Now, I was still, at the time, I was Anglican. And I remember, I'm aware of how intelligent Peter Craft was and is. And I remember listening to him at this conference, and this is a painful admission. I actually thought, okay, how is a man this intelligent? A Catholic. <laughs> I honestly, I honestly thought that. And I realized that why that was a pivotal moment is the answer to that, my response could have been, well, he's clearly just gone off the rails. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's not as smart as I think. Maybe he is, and his intelligence got in the way of good sense. But whatever it was, my real response was, what is he seeing that I'm not seeing? And it sent me into the other direction. The credibility of somebody like that made me think I'm missing something. Mm -hmm. And then that helped, helped me along. So as I came into the church, um, I, I think my being Anglican helped a lot because it had so it had stolen so much from the Catholic Church that I was already well versed. Except now it had deeper meaning. So even even by the way, if you're Anglican, unless they've changed it, you know, since I became Catholic, the wording of the whole lead up to communion is pretty much word-for-word word Catholic Missal. I mean, everything about it is. The only difference is they now seem to allow that, hey, if you want to believe it's it really is the body and blood of Christ, go ahead. But you know what? If you don't believe that, it's okay. Come on mm -hmm. up and take it anyway. It doesn't matter. It's really on what you believe. And I remember thinking, no, either it is or it isn't. <laughs> this can't be a subjective 
a subjective yeah. thing that just because I believe it, suddenly it is. You're saying these prayers, you're doing everything, and but you're saying it's up to the user, you know, to figure out whether it is or it isn't. So um I, you know, at every step, my my experience as a Baptist, my experience as all of it fits into the journey to lead me to where I am. So I don't even go back and and try to talk against that. I, I don't have that former smoker feeling like, oh, well, I gave it up, you know, and now I'm so superior. Um, you know, I, I have great abiding affection for pretty much every stage of my my spiritual journey and the fulfillment of everything in my Catholicism. That's that's absolutely beautiful. I think that was only your first question. I think you know you that's yeah. great. This is exactly the kind of stuff that I'm certainly <laughs> very interested in. I know there are certainly some other people. Uh, do you do you attend the the Latin Mass, the Novus Order, or do you attend the Anglican Ordinariate? Well, we don't have an Anglican Ordinariate in our area. I'm okay. um, in Colorado Springs, so we mm -hmm. don't have one. I think I'd be inclined to want to go, uh, just because of the familiarity of certain things and the beauty of some of. I, I think some of the translations in the Catholic Missal can be a bit clunky, whereas Cranmer and the gang, when they created the prayer book, they they sort of, they, they didn't translate, they used, uh, basically, you're thinking this is the time of Shakespeare, right? Mm. This is a period of richness in the English language. So when they created prayers, when they created this prayer book, it is beautifully written, it's beautifully done. And I still use some of those prayers. But um, no, I'm actually I'm, I'm at a, tra a a nicely traditional Catholic church in Colorado Springs, uh, traditional to the degree that they we we're still okay to do Latin masses mm -hmm. and things like that. We haven't been it hasn't been yeah I put the band um, hammer down yeah nothing nothing's happened in that but but jokingly somebody actually called us the Taliban Catholics. Um, <laughs> my son was talking to somebody he said oh we go we we go to this church. I'm almost careful not to say because I don't want to sound like uh, I'm disparaging it. But but if my son told somebody that we went, went to that church and they said, oh, you're one of those Taliban Catholics. I love that. Which phrase. I thought was hysterical. I thought yeah. it was hysterical. <laughs> but um, but because I knew what they meant. That's mm -hmm. the funny thing. Well, I can I can so recommend I attend do... I attend Mount Carmel and Littleton. I get it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So. um. I am very much a traditionalist, um, not as far as some might be, um, maybe not as knowledgeable in that arena, um, but but I really appreciate now I'm very settled in this church, especially after having attended a bunch of other parishes in this area and finding that many of some some were like, um, I want to say that they were like evangelical wannabes mm -hmm. you know with kind of praise bands and a lot of things which isn't so bad if they did it well but a lot of times it's not done very well and some seemed a bit confused and and i and there was a point where i thought i didn't think mass was supposed to be purgative um because of some of our experience but um we're very happy where we are now i think yeah. it, it hits it just right so that's I'm good glad. that's good you know it's a grace that that uh it certainly is one of the factors that pushed me in the way I was because I grew up, I'm a cradle Catholic, obviously, um, yeah. or maybe not so obviously, but I am. Uh, and so 
I I grew up kind of I'd say this I grew up with a pretty good formation all things considered uh, I was one of the statistical anomalies that never even questioned really my faith or anything but I do remember a distinct moment at a Saturday night mass uh, in Burbank where I I knew uh it's a Jeff Cavins talk, which I'm not being fed. And I just remember going in California, Catholicism is a different kind of beast because they don't kneel for the, for the Agnew stay, which I always thought was very strange. Uh, mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. By the way, which, which church was it? Which church was it in Burbank? This would have been St. Finbar's. Oh. I'll tell people, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. No, because I've been there. So uh-huh. I, I didn't know. Yes. That's right. You exactly. So, so oh. it's just, yeah, it was a different kind of environment. So um, I found that's when I, the Fraternity of St. Peter, a lot of mass out there, they were having mass. It was funny. I'll never forget this. It was the latest mass in the diocese, 7 p.m. at St. Victor's, which is in West Hollywood. And mm-hmm. so I was, I always thought it was very funny that I said, you know, one of the most sacred moments you could possibly imagine is happening in the second gay epicenter in this country uh, yep. in the latest amount of time, the dead of night, right? So <laughs> yep. uh, do you think, so let's move into storytelling a little bit because, uh, uh, I want to know before we kick everything off. So you talked about how you met Peter Kraft at a C.S. Lewis uh, convention. Have right. we have we given the sort of Bach treatment to C.S. Lewis? Have Catholics kind of just quietly baptized C.S. Lewis yes. as a full card carrying member? Yeah, he's sort of an unofficial saint um, in many respects because he's de- so deeply respected, and there's a lot to respect. Now I, I know some because I did. So I've done a lot of work on C.S. Lewis in the sense that I've written a biography of him. Uh, we dramatized all seven Chronicles of Narnia. I did a dramatization of screw tape letters of uh, the story behind mere Christianity. So, and I've been working, I've worked very closely with his stepson, Doug Gresham, mm-hmm. and uh, we've become good friends over the years. And so my esteem for C.S. Lewis is huge. And I, but in studying Rumors that he would have become Catholic. I actually agree with Joseph Pierce that he, Joseph Pierce's view was that C.S. Lewis was so, it it was so ingrained in him from being a a boy from Northern Ireland, Mm -hmm. his Protestantism. It just, Joseph said, I just don't think he ever could have gone there. No matter how bad it got in the Church of England, he, he wouldn't have made that that transition and i my studies tell me especially reading a lot of his letters and and things that he would say privately uh knocking the catholic faith knocking catholic theology in a lot of ways um i just don't think he would have done it but having said that much like um somebody said to me recently i guess thomas aquinas said that even sinners plow fields mm-hmm. the sense that I look for inspiration in a lot of places. I look for inspiration. I remember making a decision as a young evangelical that, you know, the work of Jackson Brown, Bruce Springsteen, bands that I really, uh, uh, groups and individual singers that I really loved in my formative years, even though I completely disagreed with them morally, I had to appreciate their craft. Yeah. What, What they did with lyrics, what they did with music. And I've spent my life pretty much studying that, um, discerning the fact that, you know, not getting sucked into their moral point of view or their worldview, um, but studying it, looking at it, because they do it so well, you know, and and then lamenting once I became Catholic, the many ways in which the Catholic Church has relinquished uh, any degree of 
even interest mm -hmm. in the arts. You know, it's it's it was said by um, I, I'm going to say his name right, Dana Goya, who is poet laureate in California and uh, well, an enthusiastic Catholic, I think. But he was the one who said that the, the terrible thing in the Catholic community now is not only that there isn't much going on by way of the arts, but that no one seems to care. Mm -hmm. That when you talk to people about the history and the richness of the exploration of spiritual truth through art, um, people and the fact that it's gone, that you just don't seem to have it, you've got a lot of Catholics who just shrug. It, it doesn't matter. So I think the wonderful thing about what we're doing at the Augustine Institute is we're showing people that it can be done. I mean, and, and a lot of that is it. You can talk about it all, all day long and people will smile and nod. Yep. But until you say, well, this is what we're talking about, you know, and then you hope that people will listen or watch or read and then go, wow, you know, I'd like to do something like that. I might even be able to do it better. Mm -hmm. And then you have that great sort of relationship of of escalating um, enthusiasm. And and then once people see it can be done, then it just grows again, um, unless it's stifled somehow, unless somebody tries to stop it. Yeah. But fortunately, you know, while we're able to do it where we do it, we'll just keep doing that and hope that it inspires others to do the same. I, I find that we are. You know, it's funny as my my joke whenever uh, I do this podcast is that inevitably I'll talk a little bit about work and always, of course, in the organic positive. And that way, Tim Gray doesn't put the band hammer down on my little project here. Oh, uh, Tim. No. I know. I know. I know. I love you, AI. Wink, wink. So, uh, <laughs> no, but, you know, I, I've always said this, especially ever. Um, I'd even been saying this before I got to the Augustine Institute, but I believe I've met enough creative Catholics who are, who are good at their craft. They don't just love Jesus, but they're actually competent oh. creatives, right? Um, I said, you know, this must be a little bit of how the proto-Renaissance feels. Like there's a small group and they're popping up little places and we're kind of having to figure out like how to build our own infrastructures and stuff, but we don't have the infrastructure of the counter-reformation, um, you know, but there's a lot of, but stuff is still moving on. You know, I'm, I'm talking to people who paint and restore sanctuaries. And, uh, mm -hmm. I, the, when I, when I first started working for whatever reason, there was a little book, it's from an architect firm that designed churches. And it was just a look, look explaining what exactly about a church do they desire to capture when they design it. It's a really, really cool little book. Mm -hmm. Um, authors and filmmakers. And so I like how little by little um, sacred music, oh my gosh, there's so much going on in the sacred music space. It's not just reserved for the uh, 16th or 17th century. I mean, there's just fantastic composers who are doing genuinely good sacred music, right? They've thrown the tambourines out and God bless them for it. So, uh, so and rain sticks. Yeah, oh, I'd never heard one until I went to Los Angeles. They they do it during the consecration. Fun fact, people. Some people don't think I'm think I'm making this stuff up. I'm like, no, I'm telling no, no, you. No, I, I I can back this up because my very first Easter. Oh no. As a Catholic. Oh no. So this was like my big, and I so I go to mass with this. Okay, this is the fulfillment of everything, isn't it? And the two things that will stay in forever in my memory, um, almost comically is the first thing was the mass was a shambles um the, they every the whole thing played out like 
it caught them by surprise, you know, <laughs> like like somebody had suddenly thrown a script at them to perform on stage and they just didn't even know what they were doing. And I thought, didn't they have the whole year to prepare? Isn't this like the high point, high point in the Catholic experience? And yet it's a bunch of fumbling around like people don't know what they're doing. And then with the like, I think it was the first song, the rain stick came out and this rain stick is being played. And I was devastated. I mean, there was a part of me that was crushed because of the level of expectation. Now, I had been warned by a dear friend of mine <laughs> mm -hmm. who had said, if you are expecting in any of the Catholic churches in your area, the kind of experience that you had at the Episcopal Church, which was beautifully yep. done. I mean, everything was, every Sunday was nearly perfectly executed. And he said, if that's what you're expecting, and that's why you're becoming Catholic, then don't become Catholic. Because mm -hmm. you're not going to find it unless you drive up to Denver every Sunday. And, and you might find it up there. And it was a hard reaction. So, so a priest who was huge in my coming into the church, um, I'll name drop him, Father John Bartunic. Mm -hmm. So Father John, I called him. Actually, I think he called me to say, well, how was your first <laughs> Easter Mass in yeah. the church? You know, nearly wept. And I told him just all the details, and he started to laugh. And he said, I can just imagine there's Paul, Mr. Aesthetic, <laughs> in this thing, and that's his first Catholic Mass for Easter. He thought it was funny, still thinks it's funny, by the way. I saw him the other day and he okay. was telling me that he thought it was funny. But it took me a while to learn um, just what was happening in the dynamic of the various parishes, mm -hmm. the things that are working against. Um, essentially, one thing that um, oh, there, there's an author that basically did this massive study of churches to see what they're doing right and doing wrong. And he told me privately that he didn't write about it in the book, but he said there are two things that are very interesting about the Catholic community um, that they're missing that you will find almost everywhere else. And that in corporate America and evangelical Christianity in America, he said, one is a desire for continuing education. He said in most parishes, People do the sacraments that they have to do, mm -hmm. but there isn't a desire for continuing education, whereas you would see in the evangelical Protestant world, it's ongoing, it's constant, it's always there in front of them. The other thing was, essentially, it's uh, the Catholic community lacks a desire for excellence, um, a higher quality of anything and everything. To, to paraphrase, basically, in the Catholic realm, good enough is good enough. And I think that does come from it, a lot of parishes being impoverished. They don't have the money for things. Uh, they're desperate for volunteers, whether the volunteer is qualified to do whatever they're doing mm -hmm. or not. You know, It's like, oh, you're willing? Great, you're going to teach our catechism. You're willing, you're going to do this because you're willing, not because you're qualified. So the desire for best practices is the better way to put it. He said those two things actually are missing at a great level. You find pockets, but for the most part, good enough is good enough. And um, I did my 
I check the box on my sacramental Mm -hmm. uh, obligations, and that's done. Now, I know that's a a gross and potentially distorted perspective, but it it impacts what we're talking about. Right. In both realms, you know, a lack of desire for excellence and continuing education, which as artists, we are in a state of constant education, Mm -hmm. learning how to do what we do better than it's being done. So both of them come hand in hand for us as artists. But to have that missing means you're also missing the encouragement to do it. Mm. So you may have a lot of people watching going, I would love to, but whenever I try to, I can't find a place for it in my church because there is nowhere to do it in my church. And the only thing that's left to me, it's not going to be evangelical Protestant. It's going to be secular. Yeah. And to do secular, I'm now going to have to potentially make a lot of compromises to what I believe to even get my foot in the door. So it really is. It's a difficult um, uh, position for Catholic artists to be in. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always in favor of more support. My joke lately has been when I'm Leo the 14th, what am I going to do? Uh, you know, mm. I think that the I think the Vatican can invest in films as long as they're not Rocket Man. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to to start to kick off a ball by saying this: uh, I don't believe any man intentionally sets out to call himself a Christian author or a Christian creative. Uh, I think did you did you do that? Is I guess is my kind of question. Well, you know? did you always? Want to I, it's a very good that? question, by the way. Um, I will say that. At the very young age, I mean, and I started writing pretty much as soon as I learned how to write and mm-hmm. read. And I would, the, this this instinct, this compulsion to express myself through it in elementary school, I was drawing, I was making my own comics, I was doing. Uh, so even at a very early age, I was expressing myself in some form of artistry, you know, if not good, but it was something. And I don't know that I ever actually thought, well, I want to be a Christian. I just wanted to be a, ultimately narrowed mm-hmm. down to, I want to be a writer. Yeah. I want to be a storyteller, and that's what I want to do. But I think my opportunities, uh, amazingly, I was involved in a very arts-minded Baptist church. Whoa. And so my initial, I, I kind of cut my teeth on writing sketches for a Saturday Night Live program that I started there, except it was on Fridays. <laughs> and we were just doing sketches and songs and all kinds of multimedia things. And then that moved into one-act plays, full-length plays, musicals. I mean, we were doing, I had like a five or six-year period there that was uh, amazing creatively because it was it was me exploring how to to basically use whatever I was learning as an artist, but dealing with the spiritual realm. I mm-hmm. mean, try to pull them together. So my audience sort of dictated a lot of what I was learning anyway, because I was writing for them. And I developed the sense of, well, what's going to offend them? What won't? How far can I push the edge? Should I push the edge? What's going to be the most effective way to communicate what whatever it is that I'm doing through this sketch or play or whatever? And at the heart of it, I was always just exploring ideas anyway, and just doing it alongside with respect to the audience and with respect to the church leadership, who would certainly let me know if they thought I had gone too far with whatever I was writing. Okay. That then led into, I got published, that led me to ultimately um, California, 
um, Thousand Oaks initially, and after I got married, Mission Viejo. But right. that led me to uh, an a Christian evangelical organization there, which then led me to focus on the family adventures and odyssey and all the work I was doing there and to be paid a full-time salary to do something that I, I would do, whether I got paid for it or not, it's just nice to get paid for it mm-hmm. um, was an amazing thing. I mean, I can never, I, I mean, number one, I don't think I could be a career advisor because my career was no contrivance of my own. I just could not have mapped it out the way it's played out. But for me, it's been an integration of my spiritual life with my creative life. I've actually tried to write what I considered a a secular uh, story, a novel. I I wanted to do something that did not smack of any Christianity. I couldn't do it. Mm. The closest I have come to it is with Focus on the Family Radio Theater, our unofficial motto was, secular worthy storytelling from a Catholic world or from a Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's true for me now, but except from a Catholic worldview. Yeah. Um, but secular worthy was the key thing that we don't use our Christianity as an excuse to be substandard. And so we went in saying we are going to do the best we can and figure out how to do it and do it well. And, and that still stays with me. But the closest was I did a series of mysteries called the Father Gilbert Mysteries. When the premise was a Scotland Yard detective becomes an Anglican priest. And this kind of, he's solving mysteries, but the mysteries always seem to have a supernatural edge to them. Hmm. Um, And it was weird to me because I don't know that I started out thinking that's what I wanted it to be. I think I was intrigued by the idea of a Scotland Yard detective becoming uh, a, a pastor in the evangelical sense. But to me, Anglican priest, and this is the other funny thing. Uniform means everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a guy comes up to you in a regular outfit and he says he's a cop, but you're thinking, uh, I don't know, you're going to have to prove that to me. But you know what? A policeman comes up to you in a uniform and he already has a certain amount of authority. And I always thought the same thing that there's a big difference between, say, an evangelical pastor in a shirt and tie mm-hmm. and, a, and a man wearing a collar a man wearing a priest collar, because when you do that, people immediately notice, and there is an inherent authority. So that was part of it. But again, I couldn't get away from the spiritual. I've never been able to get away from the spiritual. And years later, I can say, I think my at my heart level, what I'm trying to do is figure out Christianity through art. Mm-hmm. How do you live it in, in uh, well, especially when you're up against an adversarial culture, but how do you live it in your, in, in your family life, at school, at work? How, and I, Adventures and Odyssey, I think all these things, everything I've done over the last 40 years has been, that's the common theme, which is, what does it mean? What does it really mean? How do I tell stories that might nudge people because I, I don't even write to proselytize anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, Odyssey did do a certain amount, but we all we assumed we were writing for a Christian audience. So we didn't have a lot of evangelistic episodes, the come to Jesus episodes. We assumed everybody already knew him. Mm-hmm. But so that allowed me to write, not so much trying to proselytize, but to explore. 
Yeah. And then with the Augustine Institute, we've done St. Francis, uh, St. Patrick, St. Cecilia. We did Robin Hood. We're in production, post-production on our St. Joan of Arc. Yeah. And all of it really is an exploration of how these saints made their decisions. What choices did they make? What were the consequences for those choices? So all these years later, I'm still basically exploring the heart of of the faith in real life or in a fantasy life that represents to some degree aspects of real life. That's that's fantastic. And you know, so much of I find so much of Christian storytelling, it's 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 message before the medium, right? Like we have to come out and hit someone over the head mm. and make sure and and to be honest, to be clear, um I was watching um I was watching some commentator, political commentator, not long ago, and they were talking about how there's this encroachment of all these horrible secular worldview ideas that's coming into media just casually through kids media these sorts of things and he said something interesting he said now you have to understand they didn't just pop up with this nowhere in the world christian media we've been doing this for years where we say if we put out the message people have to eat up the content because because the message right because you have to do that so i remember i remember I have, I'm sure, I don't think I have any books on my shelves now that I'd be like, eh. but I remember like going to movies and stuff that I was like, I just don't think it's that great of a movie. I, I always say this about God's Not Dead. I'm sure I've offended the filmmakers plenty of times. Um, mostly because you're papist, you should know better. But I, I get taking a Protestant shilling. Uh, but it was just, I thought, the I said the premise sounds good. It sounds fundamentally Catholic. It's like the virtue of going deeper in your faith might mean you lose everything. And what if you don't have your answers? It's It's risk. The faith takes risks. But if you're in this once saved, always saved mentality, if you just in my consumer base already knows Jesus, um, Mm -hmm. you know, then there are so many just short storytelling shortcuts. So one of the most true story or not, right, one of the most disingenuous parts for me in that whole movie wasn't the fact that this professor wasn't just an atheist because that's what everyone is. But it was the reason he was an atheist was actually he believed in God, but God took his wife. Yeah. And I'm like. No, I've never, I've met a lot of atheistic professors. I had a rabid liberal one for, for biology class. I don't think that mm-hmm. was the story. I think that they just no. never, religion was always a cheap presented just like this and an yeah. easy pushover. No, no, it's it's interesting because, and a, a friend of mine is actually a professor at a pretty, I mean, pretty high top notch college. And I asked him about that. I said, okay, in these situations, I mean, is it anything like this? And he said, no. No. He said, here's what happens. The dynamic in the class is the professor's the professor. He's the boss. Fair enough. And he wants certainly to teach and to explore. But you might have a percentage of professors who really will, they penalize you. You write that paper. And if it's well done, he said, professors generally, even if they completely disagree with you, mm-hmm. uh, if you, if you, come at it in a scholarly way and you prove whatever it is your thesis is. He said, generally, they will allow for that. The problem is when you have slipshod work or you have somebody who clearly like stands up in class to challenge the professor in a way that sounds like whoever's doing it is either on his own, just arrogant and egotistical just to go, hey, I want to get one up on you. Or trying to somehow evangelize the rest of the class. As soon as the professor smells that, he will slap down the student. And the more the student pushes back, the more the professor, who has the upper hand, Mm -hmm. will push back. Now, why the professor 
any of these professors believe what they believe is always worth exploring if you're writing a movie and you're talking about a character. I would agree with you on God is not dead. And I still think the second movie should have been God called God is still not dead. I don't know why they called it. God I love it. I've watched it. But maybe I should. You know, I never watched it, actually. And I only watched bits of the first one. And, I, mm -hmm. and it's terrible because I watched it. I knew at a basic level why it was so appealing to the faithful. I had a hard time believing it was going to bring anyone to the faith, but it just reinforced certain stereotypes. Um, and and boy, aren't we abused, but wow, isn't it cool the way we get the upper hand? But to me, the 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 characters were so superficial and one-dimensional, I didn't believe it. In fact, I didn't know they were Catholics who made the movie, and That's funny I would have loved to have had the conversation with them to say, okay, if you had done this movie and not tried to be so evangelical about it, and I don't mean evangelistic, mm -hmm. it it had all the flavor of an evangelical Protestant movie. If you had made that movie as, as a Catholic, if you had brought your Catholicism to this movie, I wonder how different it would be. Exactly. Because I think it would have to be different. You know, there's a whole other dynamic that in comparing, and I'm, and, uh, and again, this is not a matter of superiority. My experience moving from evangelical Protestant to writing in a Catholic community is that I feel like I have more freedom. I think the Catholic sensibility actually artistically allows more breathing room to explore ideas and not to go with one-dimensional characters that you want the fullness of characters. I mean, we can't study the saints to the degree that most Catholics do and not see the fullness of humanity, mm -hmm. for better or worse. And I think that's often what's missing in what we would call Christian art that it is driven by a desire to convert, which immediately makes it suspicious and also tends to make it bad art. Mm. Because as soon as you have an agenda driving it, rather than an honest exploration of the human condition in conjunction with an honest exploration of God, with that human condition, you're in trouble. Because now we're just selling soap. But it, it's like we're just selling something that's somehow going to give you a better life. Yeah. In fact, Catholic Church teaches the opposite. I mean, the, the, so much of other, I want to say other denominations, there's an inherent, God wants me to be happy. It's a prosperity gospel. You know, whereas you got the Catholic Church going, ah, there's a lot. I don't know. We read our Bible. There's a lot of suffering, you know. And I think that also informs a lot of it. We don't have to sugarcoat in our art, the difficulties of faith, the difficulties of living out our faith against all kinds of pressures, internal and external pressures, um, in a way that that you'd find in other realms, they can't do it because it will impair the evangelism. In other words, you, you've got to have, it's okay to have characters struggle with some minor things that you can shrug off. Right. Most of the goal is to say, you started here, you're going to wind up meeting Jesus, and your life is going to be better. So I'm selling that to you so that you'll you'll buy it. And I understand the impulse for that. I understand why they do it. Um, it's, it's an honest intention. Yeah. Because yeah. so much of evangelicalism is evangelizing. 
And everything is a tool to do that. The problem in the artistic realm is, um, as I've often used this example because I live with Pikes Peak just within view of my mm-hmm. back window. And the joke is that you look at the beauty of, say, Pikes Peak, and you look at natural beauty, and Scripture tells us. I mean, it's all of this stuff points to the glory of God. Mm-hmm. The problem in evangelicalism is they would look at the mountain and they'd go, but see, there's a danger. People are going to worship the mountain. They're going to worship nature. We need to carve John 3.16 in the side of the mountain. And the beauty of the mountain is completely spoiled because they said we have to do that. And they carve it in and it mars the beauty. Well, that's the danger with art. We take art that should be breathing and exploring and allowing people to engage and think. And then we mar it by doing that thing that shows, oh, we really had an agenda. We were selling you something. Yeah. Yeah. And and that really wrecks us. I'm I I, I have two very recent sort of analogies, but the first is um, you know, I've always said that the faith is it makes sense that we talk about how much God loves us because anyone who's been in love and authentic, genuine love knows that there are just times words just don't quite cut it. And no. love is naturally, it's very mysterious and it's, it can be feel very fickle and very fleeting. And it's very hard to know, are my emotions, are, you know, where do my emotions play into this? Where does the ascent of my will play into this? Um, I've been married now for about a year and a half. And I got to tell you, marriage is both the grandest and the most difficult adventure I've ever been on in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like love is love is a funny thing. It has taught me more about God than I ever could have thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing I was thinking of is, um, you know, today, so we're doing a, we're doing a piece on the Eucharist at work and Tim's teaching over a Christ at Galilee and the bread of life discourse and this sort of thing. And I always say this, I say, you know, isn't it amazing that Christ has these people, he's, he's given them bread, they followed him around and then he's telling them I'm the bread of life, John chapter six. And they're just going, you're crazy. You're crazy. And all that stuff happens, all that work, that buildup goes. And he turns to his apostles, they all leave him in verse 66. And he turns to the remainders and he goes, do you also wish to leave? Mm -hmm. I'm like, that is just a garbage, uh, that is a garbage uh, pastoral thing, isn't it? Like, wouldn't you go and go, wait, no guys, I want everyone in, the boat's all great. Let me explain exactly what I mean. But he really made him work for it, you know? Well, and that's the thing. The, and he said that about counting the cost, which I think is huge. Um, this, this is the funny thing about So not to make this all about evangelical versus Catholic, but it's hey. interesting. <laughs> to me, the evangelical thing is so easy because basically what you put forward is accept Jesus Christ into your heart and be saved. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. And then it's okay. Now we get to the fine print called discipleship, living out your faith. Mm-hmm. That's the fine print. My joke was that the Catholic Church hits you with the fine print on the first date <laughs> before you even get to why you would even want to do it. It's it's almost like going on a first date and bringing that's, a marriage. That's contract. so true. You know, it's like we're going to teach you and you're going to know it. But the intention of that actually is Christ-like because Jesus... And we and, and Luke actually follows this art wonderfully. Um, it, as storytelling goes, it's a wonderful thing to watch how he did this. He fed them. He performed the miracles. He did all this stuff that brought them in. Mm-hmm. But when you watch his journey to Jerusalem in the Luke account, he makes it harder 
and harder the closer he gets to Jerusalem. Mm. And I mean, he makes it very hard. I mean, you can imagine what it's like just for the disciples. It's like, well, you know, you're, you're, um, okay, I, I've got to tell you that um, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to get handed over. I'm going to be, and then I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. You know, and then it gets worse. One of you, by the way, will be the ones that betray me. Mm-hmm. And, it, and oh, and by the way, there's a chance that you guys are going to die. You need to prepare to pick up your cross and carry it. I mean, it's just getting worse. I mean, the squeeze is on these guys. So in the John, John 6, which is, by the way, one of my favorite things, mm-hmm. because it's so confounding that he turns and then he hits them with this. This is what it is, which, by the way, I have yet to hear um, a Protestant response to that chapter that explains anything symbolic. Because of the reaction. In fact, Protestant teachers would often be the ones to say, like, when it came to whether Jesus is God or not. And I remember uh, a great apologist, uh, Josh McDowell, saying, look, if there's any doubt about it, don't just look at what he says. Look at how they react to what he says. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, they wanted to stone him because he declared himself. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I said, "Okay, that rule applies in John chapter six. Because Jesus says all this. He is unequivocal. He spells it all out. And you know how serious it was because they all, all these, the multitudes are walking away. There's no point where he went, oh, come on, just joking. It's symbolic. Right. Just think it's just a parable. But my favorite is when he turns to the disciples and says, you're going to leave. And and Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. And to me, in my worst moments of never doubt, I don't doubt my faith, but just times when I might feel That's discouraged, tough. usually by my own doing, yeah. um, I keep thinking, I mean, for as much of a mess as the Catholic Church can be, my position right now is, but where am I going to go? It has the words of life because it has the words of Christ. Mm-hmm. It is the Church of Christ. So artistically, the way that's structured, by the way, you could you could unpack that and, and repack it from a storytelling point of view. But again, we're put into a position of a crucible, you know, that it's going to be tough. You're going to have to sacrifice. There's no way around it. You're going to suffer. Jesus says it a lot more than he ever talks about as being happy. Mm-hmm. And the closer he got to Jerusalem, the worse it, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. It, you almost thought he was not trying to push people away. And I, I don't like the crass thing that he was trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. He just wanted people to count the cost. He kept saying it. You have to count the cost. Mm-hmm. And that's one way to do it. And we have to do it as artists, by the way. We have to decide how far we're willing to go in terms of, I mean, there are a lot of people who would love to be working and Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And then they have to kind of go undercover as as Christians. Yeah. Um, but then the question is, are you writing things? Are you writing things that are taking people away from the faith? How I don't env- envy anybody trying to make these decisions, by the way. I'm in a, in a very rare position, and so are you, to actually get paid a salary to do something that you love. Yeah. But a lot of people are out there just trying to scrape scrape everything together so they can at least come close to what they really want to do as artists but at what cost 
Right. And at what sacrifice do you agree to do it or not do it? That's that's a big question. This is I'm sure this has affected both of us personally, especially being out in California. I remember, you know, my 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 joke, especially retroactively, is I say, man, there's probably a lot of money I left in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, if you succeeded, I, I'll tell you, when I lived out there, I mean, I knew so many people were trying to break into the business and I didn't. I'm, I'm sort of non-competitive, which is another way to say that maybe I'm a coward. I don't know. <laughs> but I actually went over to a friend's house who was a screen, a, a wannabe screenwriter. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> and I will always remember how he pointed to a wall, kind of, I don't know if you can see, but I mean, it was like a bookcase-like. Mm -hmm. And it was filled with scripts that he had written, either outlines, synopsis, whatever it was, it was filled with his work. But he'd never had anything produced. And I kept thinking, I don't think I want to get into that. And then years later, I worked on a trilogy about um, William Wilberforce, John Newton, and Alada Equiano. We did this thing at Focus on the Family, uh, kind of the Amazing Grace trilogy, <laughs> because the Amazing Grace movie had come out and or was coming out. And we were kind of partnering with uh, Walden Media to okay. kind of create a complementary audio drama that sort of goes with that. And I remember when I, I said, look, can you guys show me a script so that I could see uh, what I, I'm, I'm writing in conjunction with? And they, I was actually given three, three completely different scripts, three top-notch writers, you would know mm -hmm. the names had taken a stab at this story and they were rejected for a fourth writer by the director of the movie. And all I kept thinking was these guys poured themselves into this script. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they, they ever think of any of their work as hack jobs, but they, they poured themselves into writing these scripts and they will never see the light of day ever see the light of day. So I thought that was discouraging enough to me that I thought, I'm not going to actively pursue screenwriting, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll, I'm going to stay with audio drama and books and things like that. But we all have to make those choices. I mean, yeah. there's some guys out there who eventually get there. You know, it's like winning the lottery. I mean, it's that one ticket. All it mm -hmm. takes is the one. And that's what they hope to get. Now, it's be beholden to me as a writer to crawl into the skin of the skins of these characters, these mm -hmm. situations, because th that's one of the things that um, that's always stuck with me. I think it's instinctive, but it's been with me from the beginning that if I'm going to write about something, I want people who've actually experienced it mm. to believe that somehow I experienced it. Yeah. So I, I, I did this novel take that took place in London during the blitz. And I actually, I I was trying to find out stuff so that the people who lived it, even though you don't have very many who are still alive who mm -hmm. did, you know, I mean, that that's passing quickly. But one of the best letters I ever got was from an English woman, an old English woman who was so sweet to write, living in Australia. And she had read the book and she wrote to me to say, it brought back memories of things that she had completely forgotten about. Mm. One little thing. So every house was required because the bombs, the incendiaries, every house was required to have a bucket of sand 
sand and more than one which they often gave names to you know things like that they did the same thing with the blimps the the blimps that, that flew over london mm. down they often named things and i had put that in the book because it was an obscure thing that i found in my research and i think that's a big thing is to crawl into the shoes of another to, to the degree that if i'm going to write it if we're going to create it people are it's going to resonate with them so deeply that they can't not believe that somehow we didn't experience it. That yeah. to me is the real thing that we're after. I think it's what the uh, AI does. The films do. I mean, the difference between a teaching film, and we've all seen talking head teaching films, mm -hmm. but what you guys do in the film area and, and Steve and the gang have been doing now for years is that empathetic thing. It's, it's like, it's not enough to just teach because heaven knows we need the teaching but we have to connect that teaching to something that is is very human very heartfelt yeah which then brings a deeper meaning to it and then you guys do it visually i mean the power of the eternal rest which is just now coming out uh having watched that with you guys a, a couple of weeks ago i found it not only deeply moving at the time but it was the kind of experience that stayed with me afterwards that I just kept found myself in idle moments, just even going back to images, feelings that I had that were evoked by that. And that to me is a huge part of our, our craft as well. And is often missing in Christian art yeah, because we're so concerned about the truth in terms of factual truth, factual teaching, the teaching, the, that, I mean, we can be good at information and really miss inspiration. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I like that. You know, the like inspiration that. part of it is gigantic, and we often miss it because we're so duty-bound and passionate about getting the information out there. And But it comes out cold. It yeah. comes out without that attachment to the deeper meaning. To me, the issue in our, our church now is not relevancy i think relevancy as a phrase is bogus mm -hmm. because relevant means you're just trying to be in the here and now in order to attract people in. in vogue what we always have to do is is find help people find the meaning in what the church teaches the meaning in in that experience of the sacraments of of worship of everything yeah. and that's the biggest challenge see that's it's not easy i've spent a lifetime trying to figure that out and still trying to figure it out with every project I work on, but nobody ever said it was supposed to be easy. Mm -hmm. If we think it is easy, if it's become too easy, then chances are we're missing something. Paul, oh my gosh, we're going to have to definitely have a part two, which is great because oh, <laughs> and I don't we, even think we talked about most of what you wanted to talk well, about. Well, no, actually, it's quite the opposite. We exactly talked about what I want to talk about. And now we get to have <laughs> you on again. Uh, the last thing sure. before, as we, as we wind down here, I just wanted to kind of ping pong something off you. But when it comes to my edits and my, my filmmaking, as far as the faith is concerned, I always say that as artists, we, I think we already are naturally, certainly our own biggest critics, but I, I am extraordinarily critical of what is deemed to me as Christian art. I am, mm -hmm. I am, I have an extraordinarily harsh smell test. I think harsher than secular kind of works. I mean, I, I don't want to be BS'd in my stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just, I don't want to have the choir preach to. 
Um, and a lot of my experience out in Hollywood actually showed me why that's an important thing to have because Hollywood's a very funny place because on one hand, um, there are a lot of people who have very high smell tests in Hollywood themselves. They've been inoculated against the faith and things like that. But at the same time, they are so much in love with the idea of risking a faith and and smells and bells and visuals and these sorts of things that there are sure. just certain kind of truth and also just the nature of being storytellers, even if you're a secularist, they're just the organics of storytelling. I mean, a lot of times I feel like the faith comes out in in ways that they themselves would never really detect until you kind of point it out. So what is your yeah. own approach to kind of making sure that you're not getting into a point of complacency or preaching to the choir? Right. What is what are those times when you remove something well, and you go, that's not that's not how it works. Well, for me, I mean, the choir sometimes needs to be preached to. So I don't mind doing that yeah. because we all need that encouragement and there's a place for that. But um, like I'm, I'm not overly critical of Christian films and Christian art. Um, I basically look at it the same as I do anything, including mm. secular. You know, I'm aware of, you know, when I look at something that works or doesn't work, or why I don't think it works. Like for me, when I'm watching a movie, if I'm rolling along with it and I'm just taking it for what it is, um, it's fine. And I may even get to the end and still not think it was a good movie, but understanding why, like there's always that sense of what worked and what didn't, what were they trying to do? Did they accomplish it? What was the ultimate effect? Um, for me, by the way, if I'm watching a movie, if I'm watching anything and I become aware of all the ways that I think I might have been able to fix it. I, the writer in me suddenly comes out and goes, you know, if you had just done that, yep. you might have been able to bridge <laughs> us over to this. Then I know it's 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 death. But mm -hmm. um, but for me, it's I don't take anything. I tend not to take for granted. I mean, I've just finished this massive thing, this audio drama series we're launching. And even today, I was thinking it's funny that the weird combination that happens so I'm taking 30, 40 years of experience, and my instinct is at play in the decision that I'm making. Mm -hmm. So I'm not second-guessing myself with every character, every line, every plot point. I am, I'm not second-guessing, oh, is this any good or isn't it any good? Am I becoming complacent or aren't I? What, what, what am I doing here? Obviously, you got to disengage the editor and just get the job done. Mm. So that's what I do. Is I My first draft is... I got to step back, let my instincts, everything I think I've ever learned, whatever talent I think I may have, help me get through this and get through to a first draft. Then we can begin the process of completely tearing apart and putting it back together again if we have to. Or there's a part of me that's always praying, let it not be too bad. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. I, I hope it's, you know, and my instincts rarely betray me, but sometimes they do. I mean, I get in, you do a read through or you get in, I get into the studio to do audio dramas. And, and the actors that I work with will tell you that I make it clear to them that when I'm in the studio, I'm not the writer of this thing anymore. When I'm in the studio, I'm the director and it's either working or it's not working. Mm -hmm. It's either doing what it's supposed to do or not. And I have said to the actors, I don't know what the writer was thinking when he wrote that, but we need to fix it. Yeah. And I've had the actors go, aren't you the, and I don't care. I don't care. It either works or it doesn't. I think that might help yeah. in terms of not being complacent. But I say the other thing is, I hope one day to be a good writer. I never assume that I am. By the grace of God, I get to do what I do and get paid for it. But I know there are more talented people out there than I am who will never have the chance that I have. So I feel duty bound 
to not take any of this for granted, never take it for granted. And so when I'm working, again, it's instinct, but I just never feel like I have any laurels to rest on. I don't, mm. the complacency, well, and also for me as a writer, every new project has its own choices and challenges that are so unique that it explains why a Steven Spielberg can make a bad movie. Because if we take for granted that we know exactly some formula, I remember mm. Paul McCartney being asked when he was with the Beatles, it's like, so do you have a formula for these hit songs? And he said, oh, I wish we did. Then, you know, we would just keep doing that and then we could retire. Mm -hmm. No formula. Every That's why McCartney has bad albums. <laughs> for everything he knows, he goes into every song, every project, potentially exploring what can I do differently here? How do I keep from repeating myself? And when you do that, you're now at risk because now you're moving into a territory that may or may not actually work. And, and then it can undo you. Or as you know, with filmmakers, you get in the zone and everything makes sense. And so you just keep building on what you're building on. And then as soon as you can step away and look at it in the cold light of day, you go, oh, that didn't make sense at all. <laughs> yep. It seemed like it did while we were in the midst of shooting that day. But as soon as I step back and look, I can objectively say, being on the side of my audience now, not the creator, but the one who's receiving it, I look at it through their eyes and just go, okay, that's just whatever I was trying to do didn't really work. One of my favorite quotes, by the way, is from the composer Rafe Vaughn Williams. That's a misquote, I'm sure, especially coming from me. But somebody asked him what he thought of one of his symphonies. And he said, I don't know that I like it, but it is what I meant. <laughs> And I thought, actually, I've worked on projects like that. Uh -huh. <laughs> I come to the end of it going, I'm not entirely sure whether I like it or not, but it is what I, I intended to do. For <laughs> world, so. Oh, man, I'm I'm so delighted that you you would sit down and, and share so much, so much goodness. So well, we're going to have to definitely have you back. Tell us where is the best place to find your work? Obviously, for the audio dramas uh, for my audience, I've been telling you, uh, I'm sure you want me to shut up by now. Go on Formed and just listen to this stuff. In terms of your book format stuff, where where is the best place? To find yeah, I mean, Amazon is a great place. Um, I mean, a bunch of my stuff's on Catholic Gut Market, mm -hmm. uh, but Amazon is probably the easiest place because if you type in my name, whatever's there will show up, and there's quite a bit of it. And um, and that would include everything going back to Adventures and Odyssey, the books that I did related to that, a lot of the grown up books that I've done over the years, and things like that. So. That's a good place. Um, I'd point people to paulmccusker.com, but I don't know that we've done a good job of keeping that up to date. So <laughs> I'm not entirely, I'm not sure how helpful that'll be, but like Amazon on one side and Catholic.market for the other. And then honestly, you can go to Focus on the Family, uh, their website, and then dig into the radio theater stuff to see all, apart from Odyssey, to see all the radio theater productions we did. That's fantastic. I'm going to hop in myself. <laughs> Thank you everybody so much for watching. If you like what we had to say and we know that you did, maybe you want to comment down below if you're a writer or maybe not a writer, who cares? Uh, go ahead. We love to hear comments, notifications. Share this video far and wide. Thank you so much to our Patreons for helping make this possible. And again, thank you, Paul, for coming on the podcast. Uh, don't worry, checks in the mail. Uh, <laughs> for us, God bless you. May I keep you. We'll see you on the next one. Adios.